Hey there, welcome to the Rim Church Podcast. We're so glad you found us. The Rim Church is based in San Antonio, Texas, and we believe in loving Jesus, building family, and changing the world. Wherever you find yourself today, we trust that it is not by accident that you're listening to this message, and we believe that God has something to speak to you right where you are. For more information on what we're all about, go ahead and visit us at therim.church or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. We hope you enjoy the message. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys doing all right? Awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, hey, my name is Josh, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm glad you are here. Uh, We're starting a new series in the book of Matthew today called Encounters with Jesus. Uh, If you have not had a chance to grab one of these incredibly well-designed Bible reading plans that fit perfectly inside your Bible and reminds you every day what you should be reading in the Word of God, then we encourage you, on your way out, grab one of these, and you'll see that this week we have started reading in the book of Matthew. And our hope as your pastors is to encourage you to read the Bible. And then when you come in on Sundays, we will open to the same book of the Bible you're reading in and preach something out of what you've been reading. So as you're reading, maybe you think, man, I wish they would preach on this. And then you show up and we preach on that. So uh, that's the idea. So if you have your Bible, grab it and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We'll be there in just a moment. Uh, Over the last few years in North America, there's been a social craze that has swept the country Uh, And that social craze is DNA testing. Uh, Maybe you've done one of these. If you've done a DNA test, can you raise a hand? Ancestry.com, 23andMe, uh, they are out there. Family tree tests are incredibly popular now. Uh, MIT put out an article in February stating that 26 million people took a DNA test in 2018. 26 million people. Uh, Fun fact, that's the size of Texas population-wise. So Texas took a DNA test in 2018. Uh, Of those 26 million people, my mother was one of them. Uh, And one day she calls me and tells me, Josh, you're not going to believe this. I took a test. Uh, You are part Hispanic, part Native American. I'm like, mom, I know that already. (laughs) Like, I have tried to grow a beard to no avail for a very long time. You could have paid grandma $100 and she would have told you everything that that test told you. Uh, and, and she's like, no, it's even better than that. They give you like a thousand people that might be your relatives. So she Facebook stalks all these people, finds a lady in Corpus, messages the lady in Corpus. That lady's taking a test too, messages her back. My mom right now is friends with the relative in Corpus to this day. And they're like, buddies. So it's out there. This stuff, whether you're skeptical of it or not, it's a big deal for people. It's a big deal. Something about knowing where you come from, it matters. It's appealing to you to know your lineage. Uh, Because the family you come from, it tells you who you are. And I think all of us are searching for this understanding of who are we. And we put a lot of emphasis in understanding our physical family. Uh, but, But the same may not be as true when it comes to our spiritual family. And here's how I know that. I know that because you're probably like me. And when you get to the genealogies in the Bible, you were just skimming right through. You're like, oh, praise God. Today, my whole Bible reading was 1st, 2nd Chronicles. I'm done. I just did it. Yeah, just go through, you know, and unless there's this little nugget like about Jabez and what was going on in Jabez. Like other than that, you're just flying through the genealogies, right? Um, Jabez was not in my notes. I just wanted to say that's... Be careful, be careful out there, okay? So 1st and 2nd Chronicles may not be what you were reading today, but stay with me. Last weekend on Easter, we talked about God's power and we talked about God's love. 
And today I want to remind us that God is powerful enough to orchestrate events in human history to get his will accomplished. So in other words, things don't just happen. God has intention. He has a design. He's working things together for the good of those who love him. And he's getting us somewhere. And today in scripture, we're going to see those intentions so clearly and so profoundly. And we may have just skimmed right over them if we weren't careful. So in the book of Matthew, we're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus today. The genealogy of Jesus. And here's why. Because in the Bible, genealogies are ways of recording that God kept his promise. One more time. Genealogies in the Bible are the way that the Bible tells us God is a promise keeper. He, he's done it throughout these generations. Genealogies are a way of saying, pay attention to God's sovereignty over human history. That God is doing something. He's taking us somewhere. And when Matthew sits down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write the gospel about Jesus, he says, I've got to start in the genealogy. I've got to tell you where he came from. I've got to tell you about God keeping his promises. And he does this and he intends us to show us that the Jesus he is writing about is qualified to sit on the throne because of the story that he finds himself in in the genealogy. So 41 names, three segments of people, 2,000 years of history. Here we go. Verse 1, Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerar, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, there's a lot more in there, but we're going to stop in those seven verses, and it eventually lands at Mary, being the mother of Jesus. And Matthew tells us all of this has been recorded so that we can be ensured that Jesus is who he says he is. And listen, if you're a first century person, reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, if you're a first century person listening to this, something in those seven verses would have stood out to you. Did, did it stand out to you? I tried to like inflect at certain moments so it would stand out to you a little bit. Does anybody know what stood out? Anybody? The women. Amen. You don't even know if this is good or bad. You're just saying amen. You're just... Jesus' genealogy included five women. Listen to me, church. This is not just unusual. This is scandalous. This is not just uh, no big deal. This is a patriarchal society, and Matthew sits down, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he lists these women. These are the women listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, that's Uriah's wife. The Bible just calls her Uriah's wife. That's Bathsheba, and Mary. Scandalous. Why? Women in the ancient world were considered to be not even second class, like third class. There was a strong gender divide. Women were treated like property. They were treated like slaves. They couldn't inherit, inherit land. They weren't educated. They weren't valued. Listen, their testimony was considered invalid 
in court, which makes women being at the resurrection of Jesus first, another little scandal that the gospel throw in there. Like, hey, you know those people that aren't even valid in court? Let me tell you the testimony of what we've seen in her. It's, it's amazing, and that's not even the sermon. But there's this sidebar on that. They weren't even valid in the system. They looked down upon. They were outsiders uh, in society. When they were seen outside of the home without a man, that was uh, a, a scary situation for them. Divorce was easy. You could leave your wife. This is a patriarchal world, and that's where we find ourselves in. And this, this is an important side note. Uh, that world was not God's design. And just because it was a patriarchal world doesn't mean that's how God has designed it to be and that's how God wants us to treat women who are made in his image because when women are treated that way and oppressed, it does not lead to flourishing. And listen, you can apply that even right now. There are certain countries right now in 2021 where women are oppressed and that is not God's design. And you show me a country where women are oppressed and I will show you a country that is not flourishing because that's not the design. And this wasn't just culturally in their patriarchal society. This is also religious. There was a Jewish prayer called the Shema where men would get up in the morning and they would pray this to God. They would say, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. They would pray that to God. There's another known saying amongst religious men at the time that would say this, that it's better to burn the law than teach the law to a woman. It's better to burn the law than teach it to a woman. So if you're a reader of Matthew in the first century, you'd have been shook up by seeing the women in the history of Jesus. And not only that, these are not the women that you'd want to list in your genealogy. This isn't Sarah or Rebecca or the, the good ones in the story. These are the women you want to hide deep in the pages of the genealogy because of who they are and what their story is. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. So I want to take a minute and I'm going to say a bunch of names and I'm going to do it too fast. And I'm going to encourage you to go back and check it out later. But I want to walk through these stories and show you the scandal. And show you what God is doing and kind of the deeper magic that's happening in this story. So Tamar, first woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. Right out of the gate, this story is not safe for work. It's barely safe for church. I'm going to try to keep it PG-13, but this is rated R. Straight up. You're like, I don't watch rated R movies. Well, cover your ears for the next three minutes of this sermon. Because this is awful. In Genesis 38... You've got Abraham, who has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. That's where you get the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons' name is Judah. You may have heard Jesus called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the Judah. Judah has three sons, Ur, Onan, and Selah. I think that's how you say that. His son Ur is married to Tamar. But in Genesis 38, you realize Ur is a wicked man. God strikes him down. Now Tamar is a widow. Patriarchal society. Onan's job is to marry Tamar and to give her a child. And that's the design. Onan takes Tamar as his wife and has sex with her but doesn't impregnate her. PG-13. Stopping right there. What he does is evil in the sight of God and he is killed on the spot. Judah has seen ton of, two of his kids killed now, and he's like, I'm not sending Selah in to be with Tamar. Maybe she's cursed or whatever. So Tamar's a widow. Exposed to the elements of patriarchal life as a widow. Years pass by. Judah becomes a widow as well. His wife dies, and then Judah takes on the habit of sleeping with prostitutes now that his wife is dead. 
Now, Tamar the widow knows that Judah sleeps with prostitutes, so she goes, scandal, and sits in the spot where Judah's going to pass by and where he picks prostitutes. He goes by, sees Tamar. She's not looking like Tamar. She's looking like a prostitute. Judah takes her, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. She puts back on the widow gear. But in the exchange, there's this little moment where Judah can't pay for the sex. So Tamar says this, why don't you give me your ring and your staff, and that'll be your payment for having sex with me as a prostitute. They do the exchange. Three months later, widow Tamar is now showing to be pregnant. Judah is indignant. His righteousness comes out. He's like, Tamar needs to be stoned. You bring her here. We're going to stone her. Who does she sleep with? And Tamar comes forward. And in this epic reveal, like Hollywood level movie thing, Tamar's like, hey, before you kill me, you should know that the person that got me pregnant is the owner of this ring and this staff. Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) You're the man, Judah. Judah's like, oh my gosh. Crazy story. Genesis chapter 38, verse 26, Judah recognized them, the staff in the ring, and said, she is more righteous than I am since I wouldn't give her my son Selah, and he did not sleep with her again. Why is that story even in the Bible? Anyone want to get their family together and say, hey guys, I learned something in church today, family devotional, (laughs) Genesis 38. No, it's dark, it's depraved, it's broken. But if she doesn't do that, we don't get Jesus. God uses that, redeems this brokenness. And the story goes on and Matthew includes it in the genealogy. And then you move forward to the next woman. Her name is Rahab. Rahab is introduced to us in the book of Joshua. Joshua becomes the leader after Moses. Moses is taking people to the promised land. He dies. Joshua becomes the leader. God tells Joshua to go take Jericho. You guys know that one? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Jericho. Yeah, okay, come on. You got any church background? If you don't have church background, no big deal. We're going to walk through it all. They go to Jericho. They send spies into Jericho before they take the city. The spies need somewhere to hide out. Where do the spies hide out? A prostitute's house. Why? Because men and people come out of prostitute's house a lot so they won't be noticed. The prostitute's name is Rahab. They go there. They hang out at her house. Rahab hides them, protects them because God and his sovereignty had been moving in Rahab's heart all along. And in Joshua chapter 2, you might get the most beautiful profession of faith in all of the Old Testament from Rahab the prostitute. Because the night when the guards come, she hides the spies out on the roof. And in Joshua chapter 2, she goes out and has a conversation with the spies. It said, before the spies laid down for the night, she went up on the roof. And she said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. So that all who live in this country are melting with fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did in Shiloh and Og and the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of you, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to me and my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, then we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down with a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was on part of the city wall. 
Again, this, this, this profession of faith is beautiful. We've heard about you. Your God is the God of heaven and the earth below. Please save us. Your God is mighty and capable of saving us. And you know what they tell her to do? They tell her to take a red piece of a scarlet thread and put it on her doorpost. Anybody want to see what that looks like? The Passover. When we come for you, if you'll put this scarlet thread on your house, death will pass over you. You will be saved. Do you see what's happening in the story? And in Hebrews chapter 11, all the way in Hebrews chapter 11, in the hall of faith chapter, Rahab the prostitute is in the hall of faith. Why? Because she believed God in faith. She ends up marrying an Israelite and, and they have a baby boy who grows up and his name is Boaz. And Boaz is one of the godliest men in the whole Old Testament. When you study Christology, like the story of Jesus and his understanding through the Old Testament and where Jesus, kind of these archetype figures come up in the Old Testament, everybody looks at Boaz being the primary Old Testament metaphor for the Christ figure. Why? Well, then you meet the next woman in the story. Her name is Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth meet each other in the book of Ruth. And if, if you know the book of Ruth, you know there's a woman named Naomi. I know this is a lot of names. Stay with me. We're almost there. Naomi has a couple of sons. And in an instant, she loses her husband and both of her sons. Naomi loses her husband and both of her sons. One of her sons was married to Ruth. So now Ruth and Naomi are together with no men to help them. And Naomi tells Ruth, go away, find a man. Go do something else. Get out of here. We're not really family anymore. And Ruth responds to Naomi in one of the most beautiful passages of covenantal language in all the Bible, so much so that men and women read it to each other at weddings. It's not about husband and wife. It's about a daughter-in-law who lost her husband speaking to her mother-in-law about the life they find themselves in. In Ruth chapter 1, you read this. But Ruth said to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more ever so harshly if anything but death parts me from you. What beautiful language. So Ruth and Naomi, they're in this together. And they're stuck with no men to help them. And they're widows. And, and, and Ruth is what, she's a Gentile Moabite by race. She's not Jewish her ancestry goes all the way back to Lot and his daughters and like Sodom and Gomorrah. Like it's a broken past and they're stuck. And Ruth and Naomi, where do they go? Well, they go home. Where is Ruth's home? Uh, it's a little town called Bethlehem. Have you heard of Bethlehem? Something else happens in Bethlehem later. You guys, uh, deeper magic. Okay, you're tracking. They go to Bethlehem and they're poor. They don't have anything. And one of the ways God provided for his people is that rich landowners, when they were done working in the field, they would let poor people walk through the field and glean what was left over. And so Ruth is gleaning in the field, and she meets the field owner named Boaz. Now, Boaz is an upstanding man leader, and he sees the Gentile Moabite poor woman gleaning in his field and he doesn't judge her. He doesn't look down on her. He has a heart for her. Why do you think Boaz has a heart for her? Maybe because Boaz's mom is Rahab. That probably helps, right? Like my mom was a prostitute of Jericho. I have a heart for people that are down and out. And so through a sovereign set of circumstances, Boaz and Ruth get married. They have a kid. That kid's name is Obed. 
Obed's son's name is Jesse. David's, Je- Jesse's son's name is David. So you've got Boaz being the great grandpa of David because of this story of Ruth, the Gentile Moabite, being grafted in. And the Bible uses the word kinsman redeemer. That you're the one that brought me into the family and redeemed my entire life by calling me your own. I am now your kinsman. I've redeemed you. And the Gentile Moabite has now been redeemed. And Matthew puts her in the story. Don't forget about Ruth. And the fourth woman in the story is Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. I'm going to fly through this. But King David is supposed to be at battle. He's not at battle. He sees a woman bathing on another roof, and he calls to her. Her name is Bathsheba. She's bathing. In the Hebrew, the name Bathsheba means she be bathing. No, it doesn't. It's just a bad joke, but at this point in the sermon, you need a little break. It doesn't mean that. I don't know what Bathsheba means in Hebrew, but it doesn't mean she be bathing. It's just... It's just Cheap thrills, all right? Just jokes. David uses his power in a terrible way, summons her, gets her pregnant. To cover it up, David calls her husband Uriah from the field, tries to get him drunk so he can sleep with his wife and cover the whole thing up. Uriah is an upright man. He's not going to sleep with her. So then David says, fine, I'm going to send you back to battle, put you on the front lines, ultimately giving you a death sentence, and I'm going to take Bathsheba to be my wife. You, You may have heard that story a lot, but listen, that is dark and broken and an abuse of power and probably got some rape involved in it. It is dark, 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 dark. Broken, 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 broken. It's a tragic story. All of these stories are tragic. And it begs the question, why why are these in here? Why why are these in here? This does not make God look good. Or does it? This, This doesn't make God look good, or does it? Because ancient genealogies were making theological claims, and Matthew's readers would have understood exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. So here's the theological claim that the genealogy of Jesus is making. Here it is. Jesus is qualified to sit on the throne and be our king. Theological claim number one, genealogy. He's qualified to sit on the throne and be our king. And these are the kind of people invited into the kingdom. He's qualified to sit on the throne. And these are the kind of people invited into the kingdom. There was 41 female options in the genealogy of Jesus. And these are the four we get. You would think that might be on purpose. You could have highlighted Sarah or Rebecca or Rachel or the matriarchs of Israel. But instead, he goes, no, no, no. Let's mention the Canaanite. Let's mention the prostitute from Jericho. Let's mention the Gentile Moabite. Let's mention the one that was brought from the house that she should have never even been in. And this, should, this should be associated with Israel's sin and covenantal failure. That's the women that are brought into the story. And this is broken, but they're in the tree no less. Why? Because none of these stories mar the image of Jesus in any way. None of these stories make Jesus ashamed of his past in any way. Because all of these stories are showing us something about the kind of person Jesus is. 
He's the kind of person that we desperately need because everything in the world is broken and failed and we need a perfect king who's perfectly qualified to sit on a throne who can do something about the mess we've made. And so the theological claim is he's qualified to sit on the throne. These are the kind of people in his kingdom. The practical claim that this should, this should move us today is that your dark past and your present struggles, they do not disqualify you from Jesus. They simply put on display how qualified Jesus is to save. Your dark past and your present struggles, they don't disqualify you. You go, ah, you don't know my story. No, they don't disqualify you. They simply put on display how qualified Jesus is. And so you come to Jesus and you go, man, my, my past is broken. My story's dark. I'm actually currently still like struggling with stuff. Like last night was a nightmare. I stumbled here. And everything I've done in my life is wrong and everything's a mess. And Jesus says, I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell you about my great, 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 grandma Rahab. Let me let me tell you about her. And let me tell you about Ruth. Let me tell you about Tamar. Let me tell you the story you find yourself in. And let me tell you how God uses evil for good. And God's plan uses sinfully wicked people full of chaos and messes to accomplish his will. This is how God has operated in human history, which ensures this is how God is going to operate in your life. That he does not demand from you that you would clean yourself up, but he demands that you would come as you are. And that's the story. That's the story. But we get this twisted so often. There's this great quote by Tim Keller that talks about this exchange. And Tim Keller says this. He says, in ancient times, there was a concept of ceremonial uncleanliness. That if you wanted to stay holy or respectable of good, you had to avoid contact with the unholy. Because the unholiness was considered to be contagious. As it were, that, that you had to stay separate from that. But Jesus turns that around. His holiness and goodness cannot be contaminated by contact with us. Rather, his holiness infects us by our contact with him. He's not ashamed of his story. And so Jesus changes everything. He's not ashamed. He's not afraid. And in so doing, Jesus starts to change the world for women. He starts to change the world of women. There's some sneaky relevance to this. I love when people say, man, the Bible, that old ancient book, like it's 2021. Like we need to grow up. I love when like what year it is, is your logic for change. Like it's 2021. Like not great either. Uh, we're going to talk about that. No, just the year. Okay. Got it. Cool. Anything else going to, no. Okay. Just the year. All right. Awesome. You know they were saying that like in the 60s? Okay, okay, not, we don't have time. The Bible's relevance in the genealogy of Jesus is staggering for 2021. Because the genealogy of Jesus, you see three of the most trending cultural issues of 2021 turned on their head. Gender equality, genealogy of Jesus. Social justice, genealogy of Jesus. Racism, genealogy of Jesus. And this is the, the broken world we have today. Says, does the Bible have anything to say about this? I go, let me just tell you where Jesus came from and how it heals all that stuff. And that's not the simple answer. That's, that's in here. So, so here's what I mean. Jesus brought the gospel to women in a world where they had no value in that. So yeah, Jesus had 12 disciples, but don't get it twisted. He had a lot of women disciples too. Lots of women followed Jesus and were his disciples. Did you know that the money that funded the book of Acts was by women? 
Do you know the church in Philippi was started out of Lydia's house because she was a dealer in purple cloth and had cash for the church? Amen. Rich women, where you at? No? That's not it. I don't know. I got, that was too far. I'm sorry. But there's, there's, there's an understanding here of, of, of the power that, that God entrusted to women that, that weren't entrusted with anything in that society. And so there's a design here. Yeah, listen, the gospel shows that men or women are equal in the gospel. And yes, l- listen, the Bible teaches there's, there's a complementary nature to men and women that's beautiful and creates flourishing. But, but let me say this, and you've got to get this. There is an equality of usage in redemptive history for men and women. There's an equality of usage and there's an equality of purpose for men and women to ensure that the gospel gets to the ends of the earth. There's an equality of usage in redemptive history and there's an equality of purpose to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And nothing throughout human history has brought more value to women than Jesus. Every woman's rights movement started with Jesus. They may not say that. You go, you remember the guy that raised from the dead that we gather every Sunday to worship? He's actually more feminist than you are. You don't know what that means exactly, but the fact that you have any value at all in that society came from the Savior of the world entering human history and giving you the value. That, that's there. It's there. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, scandalous in verse 28, where he says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is a value statement that would have brought life to a woman in that world. Jesus tore down every sinful man-made barrier, and he reminds us this was a part of his design. Because one of the ways sin manifests itself is, is they bring these natural barriers of race and economic status and social inequality. This is one of the ways that sin manifests itself. And this is one of the ways the devil is coming into church and coming in America and, and messing with things by, by creating these divisions. And what the Bible says is the ultimate outsider with God It's not a matter of skin color. It's not a matter of gender or social standing. What makes you an outsider with God is a matter of your heart. That's it. And these women had a change of heart somewhere in the story, and they were given the faith of God, and they trusted God, and they were used by God to change the world. So just for a moment, like think from God's perspective. I I love to think like this. If God were to ask the question, um, I'm God, and I'm amazing, and everyone should know me, Uh, How could I most put my glory on display in San Antonio, Texas? How could I induce the most joy out of my people in San Antonio, Texas? Well, I like to believe that one of the ways God most puts his glory on display is that when there is unity amongst his people, though there is diversity amongst his people, So in other words, when a group of people get together that all look alike, sound alike, drink alike, live alike, everything's alike, that's not that impressive because country music concerts do that, right? Like that's all, that's that's not not funny. Okay. Um, (laughs) It's not that amazing when you gather a bunch of people that look like you, sound like you, talk like you. What really puts the glory of God on display is that when people come together under nothing but the banner of Jesus... And it blows the world's mind because it demonstrates that we are a part of another world. So to be a good testimony to our city, we need to be as diverse as our city is. 
And Jesus' kingdom should include people with dark past and present struggles. And we shouldn't all walk in looking our best, sounding our best. You know, we should walk in with struggles. People in this room should be struggling. And I know you are, but like that should be evident. There should be diversity socioeconomically, evidently. There should be diversity ethnically, evidently, because that puts the glory of God on display. And if someone were to come in here, they'd be like, listen, I've been trying really hard to figure out what in the world all you people have in common, but I have no idea. And you're like, yes, it's Christ alone. Christ alone. Like, there's no reason I should hang out with these people. Like, if you met these people, like, <laughs> vice versa, you'd be like, if you met Josh, not that great. Christ alone does something. It moves us. And it puts his glory on display. So, yeah, the genealogy was offensive to that society patriarchally. But it was also offensive religiously. And Jesus was always offensive to the religious. They didn't want to teach women the law. They didn't want to empower women to be disciples. And Jesus says, not only will I teach them the law, I will give them the power of the Holy Spirit and empower them to make disciples and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is out there grafting in Gentile Moabites to get his glory to the ends of the earth. And it's profound. It's profound. Because listen, most of the people in this world expected God to show up and reward the righteous and judge the wicked. And the genealogy of Jesus decides it's going to show how the wicked are used in God's plan. And God starts showing mercy to people that religious people didn't think deserved mercy. And nothing makes a rule keeper more mad than when non-rule keepers get the benefits that they thought were only theirs as rule keepers. So let me use this illustration to help us frame how we should see ourselves. Um, imagine you're applying to go to college and you're doing everything right. And you've worked really hard and you've kept all the rules and you've done everything that's asked of you and you finally get in. And right at the last second before they close application, the college, the college makes an announcement and says, actually, we're accepting everybody. Those who slacked off in college, those who filled out of high school, like, we're accepting everybody. You get mad. You go, that's not fair. That's not okay. And listen, some of us have that college acceptance illustration is the way we view God. And we think God deserves to give me what I have earned. And when we think that way about God, then we demonstrate that we don't understand ourselves at all. You keeping the rules didn't get you into college more. It actually further kept you out of college, to use that illustration. So we are the outcast in the story. We are the scandal in the story. We are the foreigner, and that's bad news. We need someone in the family to be our kinsman redeemer. And so when you read the genealogy of Jesus and you see Rahab, it should stop you in your tracks and be like, man, praise God for Rahab. Praise God for Tamar. And it should move us. It should comfort us. Because Matthew's genealogy, it included the outcast, the scandalous, and foreigner. And, and this is my hope. This, is, this one sentence is my hope for us today. That we'd feel this. The family Jesus came from anticipates the family he has come for. The family Jesus came from is showing us, gloriously showing us that this is the family he's come for. 
So come to Christ, you with a broken past. Come to Christ, you with current struggles. Come to Christ, those who feel like they are completely out of line with everything they believe about God. Come to Christ because he uses sinners, like real sinners, like commandment-breaking sinners, like Jesus has come for them. And he is not ashamed to call you family. He's not ashamed to call us family. And he's not ashamed to leverage your story. He's not. I think many of you are, though. You're like, oh, man, I'm trying to get out of my story. No, you, oh, here's, the, here's the glorious truth about God. Oftentimes, he redeems you out of something and then sends you right back in with the gospel. And I know there's times where you need to be cautious about that because what's wise and what's not. But in general, he's not ashamed of your story. He's not ashamed to call you family. And he's looking for ways he can leverage your story to put on display his grace. And that should move us. So why don't you take a moment just, just now and here's, here's the progression as the band's gonna come and play. Just take this moment to, to move from the progression of thank you, God, that you welcome me in the family. Part two, God, how can you leverage my story to further show the world your grace? Thank you, God, for, for leveraging your life to get me the gospel. Thank you, God. Secondly, how can you leverage my story? So let's take a moment and pray and thank God for what he's done and then ask him how he can leverage our story. Just take two minutes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that today's message resonated with you. It's our hope that you wouldn't be merely inspired, but that you would actually be transformed by something you heard today. At the Rim Church, we always ask two questions when processing God's word. What is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? We encourage you to take a moment, reflect, and then to share with a friend or send us a message. We'd love to hear what God is teaching you and how we can help you take your next step in obedience. Until we meet again, we love you, church.